we should be in a position to support our position and to prove that we disagree with knowledge rather than without knowledge. And I can't imagine a more delightful example of this situation than that which relates to the Hermetic literature. For in this we have a wonderful disagreement. We have the most learned persons over a period of perhaps uh, 1800 years in violent disagreement. Each of these positions has been taken with skill. Most of the authorities have done everything in their power to ferret out uh, the facts. When we say everything in their power, we place certain provisions. For it is not in the power of any person to go completely against conviction. And most of the erroneous opinions that we have in life arise from prejudice, from some bias or limitation by which it is impossible for us to think clearly and freely and to examine all facts upon their own merit alone. We are conditioned by our living, by our thinking, by our education and our environment. And these conditioning factors move in upon our thinking and frequently distort it. Therefore, if a person researching in some field belongs to a school that has strong prejudices, he has already lost his own freedom of thinking, his own individual directive. We'll begin with a discussion to be found in the Stromata of Clement of Alexandria. This writer uh, was alive and at work uh, as a literary man between about 175 and 220 A.D. He belongs to the great group of Antinicene fathers, writing, of course, strongly from an early Christian prejudice. Yet he was living with the peoples of Egypt. He knew them, and in many instances, in most cases, there was a strong streak of honesty in the things that he stated, although there could be much bias in his interpretation of facts, he was reasonably correct on his basic facts. He describes the procession in Egypt, which apparently he had seen, a sacred ritualistic processional involving uh, the custodians and bearers of the books of Hermes. He describes how a procession of priests and savants, teachers, moved in very sacred ritualistic order each with an appropriate symbol and wearing certain insignia indicating the department of learning over which he presided clement also says that to earn these distinctions of learning it was necessary for these scribes scholars and priests to have memorized certain books of hermes some three books, some four books, some ten books. These various religious and philosophical teachers 
also carried emblems relating to the branches of learning over which they presided. Therefore, some of them had become masters of the medical books of Hermes, others of those books dealing with statesmanship and law and the government of peoples, others still of astronomy, mathematics, navigation, and the secrets of the heavens, and the geography of the earth, still others in turn of philosophy, of the deeper mysteries of the mind, of those sciences which are speculative, inductive, or theoretic, and still others bearing those books and insignias which indicated that they were students of the divine mysteries concerning the nature of God, of deity, of the state religion, of the secondary, secondary deities and tutelaries, and all things which had to do with theology. Adding together the books specifically referred to by number, but not by name, by Clement, we find clear statement of 42 books, divided apparently into a wide variety of subjects. In so short and simple, covering practically every field of knowledge known in the ancient world. Now we have here several facts of importance. The first is that Clement writes apparently as an eyewitness to these rituals, taking them for granted. And his contemporaries must have known whether he was correct or not. And it is unlikely that he would have perpetrated a fraud. It would have been too easy to detect it and some other writers would certainly have come out violently against him. The second important point is dating, namely that this procession occurred probably not later than 220 A.D. and possibly as early as 150 A.D. This gives us a kind of orientation which brings us violently into conflict with one of the greatest antiquarians of his time, Fabricus. He declares it to be his most solemn and sincere conviction that the Hermetic books could not have been written prior to the year A.D. 300. Now here we come head on into one of our um, least minor problems. Is it conceivable that Fabricus was not aware of the statement by Clement? This is almost impossible. Had he not noted it himself, someone else would have brought it to his attention. He was working at a time when literature was not as abundant as it is now. Men did not overlook source books centuries ago when these constituted practically the sum total of authority. Therefore, we try to understand why Fabricus took his position. The answer is obvious from other authorities working in the field. According to this uh, answer, Fabricus assumes that the books carried by the Egyptians in their religious processional could not have been the present books that we now associate with Hermes. Fabricus would be inclined to follow the school with which he had greatest fondness and take it for granted that the books referred to must have been primarily Egyptian that these books must have been in the Egyptian philosophy, in the Egyptian religion, and almost certainly in the Egyptian glyphic writings. 
He, on the other hand, Fabricius, takes the position that the Hermetic books that we know today were undoubtedly written in Greek. Now, where we do not have many facts, positions can be strongly held. His position is sustained by the evidence of his time, but he, there were two things he didn't know. He couldn't know. One was the discovery in 1946 of the Kenoboskian Library in uh, near Luxor, about 30 miles from Luxor in Egypt. Uh, this library proves conclusively that the Hermetic books were in existence prior to A.D. 300. And the general opinion now is that the manuscripts discovered will probably date from the middle of the 3rd century A.D. or perhaps the beginning of that century. In other words, these books are practically contemporary with Clement of Alexandria, the man we quoted first. Now, the position that the Hermetic books had to have been written in Egyptian is also assailed by another fact, a fact which perhaps Fabricius did not adequately examine. That is, that considerably earlier, a Greek dynasty of pharaohs had taken over the administration of Egypt, and Egypt, Egypt was already passing from Egyptian learning to Greek learning. This we evidence from the appearance of the Septuagint version of the Bible, which was actually uh, prepared in Greek, in Egypt, uh, probably in the middle of the 4th century B.C. Therefore, to say that Greek could not have originated in Egypt prior to the 4th century A.D. is no longer a tenable hypothesis. Also, we have another interesting point, one that we cannot overlook. The discovery of the Rosetta Stone gave us our first real clue to the Egyptian language. And it is important to us because it is a bilingual inscription in Egyptian glyphs and in Greek. Now this is important to us for two reasons. First, because this stone was cut or prepared approximately 200 B.C. The second point of interest is that this stone actually carries the name of Hermes. It is one of the words, of course, in the Egyptian form, Thoth. But it also carries another very interesting uh, peculiarity by which we divide uh, the Egyptian Thothic literature from the true Hermetic structure. We most of us realize or remember that Hermes is generally referred to in the Hermetic writings as Mercurius or Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice greatest. And in some of the earlier works, this is modified a little, and he is called the twice greatest. But always this peculiar appellation of more than great accompanies the peculiar use of the term in the Hermetic literature. On the Rosetta Stone, uh, the reference to Thoth is Thoth great great, in other words, twice great. And this carries with it an implication that is so close to our hermetic problem that we cannot ignore it. Also we know, therefore, that 200 B.C., a sufficient study had been made and a sufficient interest had been created that a bilingual inscription uh, relating to matters of importance 
had already uh, assumed the proportion of a necessity. And in Egypt, Greek and Egyptian were both languages needed in the administration of the state 200 years B.C. This brings uh, the next point uh, that involves itself in our peculiar uh, situation. How early could these books have been compiled? Here another group of authorities move in. The effort now being to collate or to, re to relate certain words and structure in the writings of Hermes with the existing versions of the Bible. This opens an interesting problem and it is now generally regarded as likely from the peculiar use of terms that the author of the Hermetic works was to some degree acquainted with the Old Testament. The quotations that he appears to use or the similarities which arise are clearly to the Septuagint version or the version that was actually prepared in Egypt. Also references to the New Testament have been variously traced and implied and this opens another interesting situation. Namely that perhaps the author was acquainted with the New Testament but the evidence to sustain this is less strong than that he was acquainted with the Old Testament. This brings another group of authorities into the picture. Namely the recognition that ancient works passing downward over periods of time are frequently changed. Uh, a scribe or a translator working with a document and with certain liberty to either polish or refine the style of that document is very likely to fall into idiom, the idiom of his own time. Our outstanding example of that, of course, is the King James Version of the Bible. This version, prepared and published first in 1611, is a masterful translation into English. Yet any scholar examining the uh, King James Version would date it almost certainly into the opening years of the 17th century. Not because the original contents belonged to that period, but because in the translation it has fallen into the idiomatic forms current at the time the translations were made. This can also have occurred in connection with the Hermetic writings. It is not at all impossible that versions or variants of these writings may have appeared at several times and that these various editions might have been some in Egyptian, some in Greek and that those in Greek, probably made by scholars, could easily be influenced by dominant books in the field of the literature of that time. So out of this entire rather involved and uh, at the same time interesting detective story, we come to a series of rather negative facts. Actually, no authority has as yet clearly proven his point. It is not absolutely certain that uh, words or peculiar constructions paralleling the Septuagint could not have come into the Hermetic writings at a time of their translation 
or transliteration from the Egyptian glyphs. Scribes and scholars could have polished the work in the temper of their own days. Nor is it at all impossible that other versions of the work may have been tampered with after the beginning of the Christian era. It is quite conceivable that efforts would be made by certain groups and certain sects to twist or move this group of literature into the Christian camp. On the other hand, certain other groups might have done everything possible to delete Old Testament parallels for various reasons. And later in the period of the heresies, each translation could be changed, even as we observe changes in the Bibles of the various sects of the early Protestant Reformation. We have therefore only one essential fact that seems to be uh, clear to us. Namely, that Clement was aware of the existence of some kind of a literature. A literature which does not exist in Egyptian glyphs in any manuscripts that we know today. He was aware of this literature as early as 175 A.D. Cicero uh, flourishing approximately 100 B.C. also refers to the Hermetic writings. Now, shall we say that these were Egyptian works now unknown, or were they the same general body of literature that we are now concerned with? There is nothing to indicate in the remarks of Cicero that he was referring to a particular or special kind of hermetic writing. He took the attitude of referring to the subject as a corpus or body of literature. From what we are able to gather from these suggestions, and bearing in mind that uh, Clement makes no concept or claim that this ceremony had been recently introduced, or that it differed from ancient and usual practices, we, are, we gradually move the date of the Hermetic literature back until in all probabilities we have some security as early as the first or second century BC. Beyond this point we have not so great a security and we are quite possibly involved in a situation that arose after the gradual decline of the Greek academies and the motion of Greek learning into the Egyptian theater. Now why do we make a point of the difference between Greek and Egyptian in this case? Is there any reason to assume, for example, that these hermetic books might not be merely well-polished Greek versions of more ancient Egyptian texts? This is a moot question. Uh, in favor of it, of course, is our comparatively an inadequate knowledge of Egyptian religion. A knowledge, however, which is gradually filling in. And uh, at last, our Egyptologists are beginning to worry themselves with some text other than those of the old funereal rites. We're beginning to sense something of the dignity of Egyptian literature, something that we have not known until the last 25 to 30 years. However, against the belief that these works are simply a translation of earlier Egyptian doc doctrines, there are certain facts not to be overlooked. 
what we know today of Egyptian religion, or what we have been able to piece together even in more recent years, would lead us to the conviction that the Hermetic books are not orthodox Egyptian texts. They represent some kind of a change. They are not steeped in the Osirian ritual of the later Egyptian religion. They are not uh, part of the great Ammonism that preceded that. They show very little indebtedness to any structure of Egyptian learning which we now possess. There is, however, as Dr. Preston has pointed out, and a budge of the British Museum supports this position, there is great possibility that mystical or secret sects existed in Egypt at an older time, and that these sects may already have begun uh, the rationalization of their theological concepts, and that religious philosophy, as philosophy, may have arisen in Egypt at an earlier date than we realize, and has generally been ignored because we have not recovered adequate text evidence. If, as was the case in early Christian mysticism, this lack of adequate text is simply due to the fact it was not written, but was passed on as oral tradition, or under obligations, or as Breasted suggests, the glyphs themselves may be susceptible of two complete systems of interpretation. We may then well be in the presence of a tradition long held orally and finally reduced to written form with the rise of the Greek uh, period of culture in Egypt. This would be consistent because the coming of Greek learning to Egypt would have justified a large part of the Hermetic corpus. In other words, for the first time, the teachings of Hermes may well have become of interest to the average Egyptian, who was beginning to be cultured in the philosophical speculations of the Greeks. Egypt was reticent in these matters because, of course, it claimed, as most ancient nations did, that itself it was the cradle of learning. It might, therefore, well have refused uh, to wish to accept that a foreign teaching such as Greek was of primary importance and may have attempted to prove that its own teachers and its own leaders of past times had originated this doctrine. Now let us see how that stands up because we have an interesting point here. We know that in the 6th century BC nearly all Greek scholars visited Egypt. We know that Pythagoras received a large part of his education from the Egyptians. We know that Plato visited Egypt, receiving the mysteries at Sais. We are perfectly well aware that Solon in the 6th century went to Egypt, and there he became instructed in the principles of laws which he later reformed and applied to the needs of the Athenian states. All of these considerations must cause us to realize that Greek philosophy was, a, was indebted to Egypt. Yet in Greek philosophy we do not find the elements of the Egyptian religion which flourished at the time of Pythagoras or Plato. We do not find Pythagoras returning with a hierarchy of Egyptian deities to impose upon the Greek mind. We do not find him returning with Egyptian 
religious rites, ceremonies, or rituals, although Pythagoras was profoundly concerned with ritualism. From what we can generally observe, the Pythagorean system was essentially derived from the Orphic, uh, which in turn probably came originally from the Far East. Yet here we have Greeks going to Egypt, learning many things and returning to strengthen and unfold their own Grecian system of philosophy. Is it possible then that the return of Greek philosophy to Egypt about the time of the rise of the Hermetic literature uh, was more than a coincidence? Is it at all conceivable that Pythagoras and Plato and Solon and others who made the same at that time difficult journey actually received a teaching different from that of Orthodox Egyptian religion, and that in the mysteries of this uh, teaching they derived the principles of their own Greek system. If this is true, then there is no reason to doubt that the Hermetic tradition in Egypt, which in many ways is similar to the Greek, might well have been older than the Greek, and might have been communicated to those Greeks who later fashioned the Platonic and Peripatetic systems of philosophy or even the Stoical and Cynical schools. All this gives us something else to worry about, which I think I add as a kind of a novelty, because as far as I can find out, the others have not been worrying about this point. This is a private worry of our own. There is every reason, then, to assume that being without knowledge of the actual facts involved, and having only circumstantial evidence upon which to build, we cannot preclude the possibility that the Egyptians did possess the rudiments of Hermetic philosophy earlier than the rise of Greek philosophy. This would seem to be more probable inasmuch as the Greeks borrowed from the Egyptians at a time when the Egyptians were not borrowing from the Greeks. In those days, when Solon visited Egypt, the Egyptian priests referred to the Greeks as children, infants in learning, and Solon was inclined to agree with them and recognize the tremendous value of being allowed uh, to become acquainted with the Egyptian system of law and uh, political structure. All these situations lead together uh, to uh, refute the belief that is advanced by one authority as a pat solution to everything, namely that the Hermetic works were compiled by an individual who was interested in both Egyptian and Greek lore, and therefore in all probability was a moderate scholar in these different fields, perhaps living late enough to also indulge in Christian speculation. These points seem unreasonable, and I think that we have to uh, recognize the probability that the so-called Hermetic tradition could have existed in Egypt without being directly involved in the state religion. It could have been a philosophical school. It could have been a group of sectaries of its, of its own peculiar order, like the Essenes in Syria and the Therapeutae also in Egypt though belonging to an entirely different conviction from the Egyptians. This gives us one other uh, situation that we cannot afford to overlook, however, even though it becomes a little contrary 
uh, to our uh, desire. We must be perfectly fair in presenting the different sides of this situation. It has been a custom since the beginning of the written word for individuals, either for prestige or profit, or to bestow unusual dignity upon some production of their own, to ascribe that production to an ancient writer. We find this all through various works. For instance, as late as the 18th century, a whole group of works were attributed to Aristotle, in which he had no part at all, particularly an essay on midwifery that certainly would never have been Aristotelian. But these tracts, in order to gain a quick public, uh, borrowed ancient names. Friar Bacon, Roger Bacon, was subject to the same type of uh, fabrication. And it is even uh, generally assumed today that books printed as late as 1800 were printed on old paper and old type and backdated to become more impressive. There is no way in which we can estimate what individuals will do to accomplish an end. It has been also the general experience of man that antiquity bestows authority. And wherever a subject wishes to have immediate recognition or to move into a sacrosanct position, it uh, chooses to be appended to an ancient work. Thus, if we say that a work was written 50 years ago, uh, it does not have the same prestige if we say that it was written 2,000 years ago. Antiquity seems to give us a certain sense of confidence. Also, it makes a remoteness dividing the work from our common habits and dividing the author from the persons we may have known. Uh, we know what fabrications in various fields of literature have accomplished in this particular case or instance. Thus, it is always possible that the hermetic writings were produced at some period, perhaps between the 3rd century B.C. and the 1st or 2nd century A.D., and attributed to an earlier author. This attribution may not be as completely um, dishonest also as one might think. Because even today we have a class of literature, particularly in metaphysical and mystical matters, in which various ancient persons are said to have revealed themselves or to have dictated writings or to have projected thoughts upon later writers. We have a considerable field of spiritualistic literature sustaining this position. We also have a number of minor religious movements of comparatively recent order or vintage in which the essential teachings are attributed to miraculous circumstances and remote ages. If these things come through a kind of inspiration, if an individual entranced or under the pressure of vision uh, seems to see, note, or be in contact with a remote scholar or a great teacher of the past, he may very well actually believe that some document dictated to him is actually attributable to the original author. This type of thinking we do find, and we find it quite honestly advanced. And with perhaps 18 or 1900 years of obscurity in between, it is very difficult for us uh, to clearly uh, demark these possibilities and to give them adequate consideration.
I think one point is of very great interest to us, and that is that the history of hermetic literature is loaded with a variety of unreasonable circumstances. Even after we pass out of the original Alexandrian center, where in some way this whole literature seems to have risen in this great North African melting pot of beliefs and doctrines, it moved into the Near East to involve or invite the speculations of the Arabs. They did a splendid job of speculating, by the way. Uh, their extravagances added to the original uncertainty have not done anything to clarify the matter. Uh, but they did undoubtedly uh, prepare commentaries and tracts, and in their own inimicable style had their own revelations relating to the Hermetic uh, philosophy, so that just as we are indebted to them for a number of original uh, Christian documents, so we can definitely say that we are indebted to them for a very remarkable group of hermetic uh, interpretations, expansions, revisions, and even a, a book or two that was not previously known to exist. Whether these actually were legitimate or whether they were invented, we have no way of knowing after so long a period of time. This also meant that the hermetic philosophy returned to Europe. It returned to the Moors and through the uh, Crusades and through the increasing contacts between the Near East and European scholarship. It came back to Europe or reached Europe in a blaze of glory. It became uh, one of the great fashions and fads of the time and Hermes grew in stature to such extent that he eclipsed even Aristotle for a while. And that was a considerable problem in eclipsing. Actually, however, in the interval, in its slow meanderings uh, from Egypt via Arabia and into Spain, and from Spain up through southern Europe into the great centers of European culture in the medieval period, in this period of wandering, uh, the Hermetic philosophy began to change its shape change its uh, presentation, much of its so-called broadness was lost. The original books of Hermes uh, came to be regarded as merely the outer surface of a larger literature, and the entire subject gradually uh, emphasized its scientific import and became practically synonymous with medicine. Thus we have a complete literature dealing with the medical arts and, of course, one of the prime elements in medicine, chemistry. Chemistry, of course, in those days was without boundaries such as we know now. Chemistry in China, in India, Arabia, was alchemy. And alchemy was a fantastic conglomeration of ancient beliefs and modern experimentation. The alchemists were not by any means a group of quacks, nor were they an assembly of madmen. They were devout persons, serious scholars, deep thinkers. And in their thinking and in their speculations, Hermes became their patron saint. And this ancient philosophical personality ultimately dissolved to become the symbolic figure of mercury, quicksilver, a chemical element. 
So in his long journeys, Hermes passed from a demigod of Egypt to a medieval element. Now that was quite a trip. And in the course of this traveling, another interesting thing occurred. During the 15th and early 16th century, a brand new literature accredited to Hermes appeared. For this literature, there is no history whatever. We know beyond reason or doubt that this literature arose from original sources, perhaps not earlier than 1400 A.D., and as late as 1500. But the name of Hermes began to appear on the titles, pages, and among the emblemata of alchemy. He became accredited with the preparation of uh, chemical formulas, means of transmuting metals. He was even accredited with the discovery of gunpowder. Now this is so totally different uh, from the corpus hermeticum of ancient times that we must pause. Yet we must also remember the words uh, of Clement of Alexandria in the Stromata, where he tells us that in this procession of priests there were some who carried the symbols of medicine, chemistry, and other arts. Upon perhaps this very slender foundation, Hermes was elevated to become the patron genius of uh, medieval Hermeticism. This Hermeticism divided very definitely into two schools. One was that of the gold makers, whose philosophy was not, however, as superficial as we might think. They were convinced that there were analogies in nature and that any uh, law or pattern or process by which the regeneration of man could be achieved could also be used for the actual transmutation of base metals. On the hypothesis that all processes in nature have a certain uniformity and consistency, it was assumed that if man could save his own soul, thus transforming himself from a material to a spiritual creature, that he could also transform metals from the dross side of themselves to a more purified state suitable for medicines and elixirs, suitable for the extension of life and perhaps the achievement of physical immortality. These gold makers, however, such as those who were so industriously occupied in the old street of the alchemists in Prague, Czechoslovakia, uh, these alchemists were ridiculed by another group. This other group maintained that the entire hermetic tradition, as it has now been called, dealt not with metals, but with the regeneration of the intangibles in human nature. If anything, they would have taken the position that if you can transmute metals, this proves you can transmute man. They would have reversed the polarity. They would have reversed the interest, affirming that the mere achievement of material wealth was an ignoble and unreasonable end, totally inconsistent with the divine destiny of man. These mystical gold makers then immediately began to reduce the chemical symbols and tracts and writings attributed to Hermes and other authors into metaphysical textbooks. Books inclined to, to reveal that transmutation was a kind of yoga, a kind of mystical regeneration within the human being, the man himself being the alchemical retort in which these marvelous changes might take place. And these same mystics assumed that Hermes, Representing Mercury, Quicksilver, 
representing this mysterious agent in which all elements can be reconciled. That Mercury, therefore, represents the reconciling power of human consciousness, or perhaps more exactly, of the human mind. For Mercury becomes the key, the master of the mystery, by means of which all things are unlocked. And the medieval man liked to think of reason as this power by means of which all mysteries could be solved, all good things could be accomplished, and the interval between man as a physical being and man as a spiritual being could be crossed or bridged uh, through reason and illumination. Now this would carry us back again to the Hermetic books by a circle. For in the Pimander of Hermes we have no doubt whatever that Hermes is used in this work not only as a person but as an embodiment or personification of universal mind. So your mystical alchemist seems to have retained the hermetic tradition although he passed it through a variety of symbolic processes. Your material alchemist lost it. And perhaps your material alchemist was the mad parent of the entire concept of modern material science because he certainly was one of the first to conceive of the tremendous personal advantage to himself if he could control laws for profit. If, however, he was a mystic, he would control or direct laws only for the glory of truth. And this division on various levels has endured to our present time. With the rise of modern chemistry, the hermetic tradition has more or less faded from our consideration. But this does not mean that interest in these old processes has entirely ceased. At the present time, as a fair authority on books and on rare books, I think I can say that there is still a tremendous demand, a tremendous learned reading public, <coughs> desirous of securing any material relating to the hermetic experiments of the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe. Any rare work which appears in this field is immediately purchased, disappearing again from the trade. I have talked to book dealers in this country and communicated with them in Europe, and it is rare indeed to find a rare alchemical text, regardless of price, remaining in a dealer's store for more than a few days. In other words, there's a market somewhere. The interest in these things continues, and there are people who are ready to pay $200, $300, $500 for one of these old books. The market is always greater than the supply. Reprints of these works are periodically made and become in their own condition rare books. And it is common, uh, common knowledge that very few even reprints of the rare hermetic writings are available. They disappear almost instantly, not into public institutions but into private libraries where they are variously used. Thus we have another interesting point. Ninety percent of these books are not going into the libraries of chemists, nor are they going into the collections of alchemists who have any intention of making physical experiments with the texts. They are going mostly into the collections of philosophically minded persons who are concerned with the attempt to restore the lost symbolism of the hermetic tradition. And in that respect, we might mention the work on hermetic philosophy by Mrs. Sarah Atwood, one of the outstanding rarities of the last century. A very deep and 
serious study of the metaphysics of Hermes. The metaphysics of the great alchemical tradition represented in Europe by several thousand valuable books. A tradition that rose mysteriously and with tremendous spectacular intensity around 1550 and was completely forgotten or at least had passed from all interest as far as the public is concerned as early as 1700. In that 150 years or less the entire restoration of alchemical hermeticism uh, had its course and by the beginning of the 19th century 1800 or even earlier these books were rare and almost impossible to obtain. Now this gives us some a general clue to a difficult problem. We have one or two other points that we want to, to make uh, as clear as possible. As we have only numbers, such as the number 42 given to us by uh, our, um, Clement, or perhaps the allegorical numbers of earlier writers who attributed to Hermes anywhere from 10,000 to 40,000 volumes or more. Uh, these numbers are not represented by any available literature. The Hermetic fragments that we have today and which are clearly separate from the other groups which we mentioned, the Neoplatonists, the Gnostics, and the early Christian church, these fragments are comparatively meager. Yet references made to numerous others. What happened to them? Is it true that at some time along the way these were drawn into secret societies and that the alchemists at one time at least did possess access to these manuscripts or books? Is this possible? It is possible, but belongs in the sphere of romantic thinking. We have no serious evidence. Actually, only a few texts, the Pimander particularly, and the Asclepius, remain which are completely and unitedly bound up with this tradition. These are surrounded by a vast array of borderline literature, literature that seems to tip in almost any conceivable direction. There is even some evidence of alchemical writings uh, in the Alexandrian period in Egypt. But this uh, had not achieved uh, the interest which we know today. We are aware, however, that the Egyptians uh, experimented under the name of Hermetic Art with the creation of synthetic gems. We know that they were able to copy in what was later called Roman paste most of the precious stones of antiquity. And because the art of the lapidary was at that time not very well known, it is quite possible that the uh, that fraud occurred in which synthetic stones were passed off as genuine. That these creations of artificial stones, the development of certain dyes uh, for textiles, for various purposes, uh, the creation of malleable glass, or glass of itself that would bend, these ancient arts, like that of Greek fire, are known to have had some real existence. They were included in Hermetic thinking at that time, therefore indicating that the Hermetic system was regarded as scientific and having uh, secrets useful on the level of practice and trade. Uh, this, again, 
is represented only by a meager uh, circle of uh, authority or traditional remain. How then shall we examine the books of Hermes out of the knowledge that we have of them? I think the answer lies in one direction only, namely that the Hermetic concept in itself must have had a school of some kind surrounding it, that these books appeared and remain simply isolated fragments of literature is inconceivable in the mind of the time. For in those days it would have been very difficult for any scribe to have remained concealed. It was, no long, it was not then possible to follow publishing procedure. Uh, these manuscripts had to have been circulated among at least a small group of friends, devotees, or dedicated persons who were at least partly aware of the facts. Thus this literature uh, could not have simply uh, appeared and not have had any foundation in realities. In our discussion of the Pymanda, which will come later, and which perhaps should have been introduced at this point uh, in the planning of the series, but it wasn't, so we must uh, follow the pattern, uh, we have some uh, interesting thoughts. In the Pymanda, we have a general concept of universal procedure, a concept partly paralleling that of the Greeks, perhaps somewhat paralleling that which was later to become Gnosticism, and to a little degree at least, paralleling the early theological speculations about universals held by the Christian fathers. Uh, very early, the church drew to it a certain number of scholars, and these began to speculate outside of the jot and tittle of the approved canon. And uh, the mind of man, once it has reached a certain size, cannot be uh, further pressed back into an old pattern so the church had to be prepared for men thinking forward rather than merely backward. This change in perspective uh, in the various fields of learning is important to us because about the time that we attribute to the creation and circulation of the hermetic writings, we find the basic hermetic concepts uh, beginning to influence thought outside of the school itself. Uh, we are told that Hermes, for example, wrote upon astronomy. And we can only pause to realize that uh, Ptolemy of Alexandria, who was perhaps the greatest astronomer and geographer of the ancient world, and also the father of most modern astrological speculation, that Ptolemy's works move from the same premise of that of the Hermetic uh, revelation. In other words, Hermes' universe is rather closely associated with the later developments of Ptolemy. The concepts of geography and navigation are those of the Hermetic school and not of the other neighboring schools. The changes which took place in concepts of government and in the, the healing arts, the secularizing of medicine, and a variety of other subjects 
which uh, moved and changed the face of the Mediterranean culture. These changes followed closely after the so-called original Hermetic period, and they followed even more closely the original ideas and concepts of the Hermetic school. So we'll then uh, trace some of these ideas in an effort to try to show how they spread out into the literature of the time. We can see, for example, the rise of certain powerful intellectuals in the Roman Empire. It is a mistake for us to assume that the Romans were all ignorant. For from the beginning of the Roman culture to the final decline of Roman life under uh, the uh, coming of the Ostrogoths, uh, the King Theodoric, up to this period we see the continual structure of a Roman philosophy. And we find this moving through the thoughts and meditations of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, through the great hymns of the Emperor Julian, and finally to Boethius in his Consolation of Philosophy. With this, the school closes. Julian, Boethius, and Marcus Aurelius all show Hermetic influence. They show the type of thinking which was peculiarly associated with that school. A kind of thinking which, while similar to Gnosticism, was not Gnosticism. Similar to Neoplatonism was not Neoplatonism and with certain Christian elements was distinctly not Christian. Thus it is quite conceivable that down through this technically difficult period to record, uh, when as is so often the case, historians were interested only with war and not with culture, that a descent of belief and doctrine can be traced. Now we also know that one of the introductions which we find in the Hermetic writings is this important approach to the concept of mind. Now we know that Plato, Pythagoras, and Aristotle, uh, seemingly rather well exhausted our concept of the human mind. Yet in the Hermetic writings and in the Hermetic corpus, we find some new aspects of mentalistic thinking. We know, for example, uh, that in most of the Greek schools, mind became an instrument. It was a wonderful and powerful means for the accomplishment of truth. Mind was therefore a kind of channel through which knowledge moved into the individual. But in the Hermetic tradition we find something that departs from this and gives us a rather different perspective. 